Okay, well, uh, welcome everyone. This is our first podcast. And the first question we had is, what should we call it? And we actually asked people, sent something out, and I've got all sorts of clever play on words or things about me or other things, um, which from a staff perspective, a lot of them wanted to use some of those. But I determined at least at least in the beginning, we'll simplify it and we'll just call it the Hanson Podcast. Uh, I rejected Sir Hugh because of humility. Uh, and that, as a working title anyway, uh, in the near future, we're just going to say the Hanson Podcast. We have as our first participant, the Honorable Denny Chin from the Second Circuit. Uh, went to Princeton and went to Fordham Law, was a managing editor of the Law Review. Then I think you went to Judge Worker. Correct. Southern, Southern District. District of New York. And then you went as an assistant U.S. attorney. No, first to um, Davis, Polk, and Wardwell, then to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Okay. Um, and how did you like Davis, Polk? I liked it a lot. I mean, it was um, a terrific experience for a young lawyer, but I knew that I wanted to do other things. All right. Why did you become an assist a USA in the Southern District? Actually, when I was a 1L, my 1L summer, I was interning for Judge Worker, and I loved what I saw uh, at the courthouse. Um, I saw a bank robbery trial, and I thought, what a great job uh, being an assistant U.S. attorney and kind of decided I wanted to be an AUSA. I figured to be in AUSA, I probably would have to go to a big firm for a bit. I wanted to come back and be a law clerk. And I also wanted someday to come back and be a judge. Uh, and uh, so that was my plan. You knew all this for your first year of law school? Yes, I loved what I saw. And uh, um, I, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Well, it's amazing, actually, that you got to do it all, right? I got to do it all. Um, I, I added one thing that I hadn't planned on, and that was some time at the, the Vladek Waldman firm, um, a 40-lawyer labor and employment firm. I did that for um, um, a few years. Okay, you left the U.S. Attorney's Office, and you went into practice with two of your colleagues, which is not that unusual, actually, uh, from the Southern District. Uh, and you were there about four years. What type of work were you doing then? We were doing um, litigation, primarily civil litigation. The plan was to have a litigation boutique, and it was, you know, three assistant U.S. attorneys starting their own firm. And so, in the beginning, we took what we could could get, um, but we had a pretty diverse practice. One of uh, my partners had been chief of the immigration unit uh, in the Southern District. The other had been chief of um, the environmental unit, um, and we did a variety of things, a lot of commercial litigation. But I also wound up doing some employment law. And so when we broke up, when our, our little firm broke up, um, I wound up going with the Vladek firm. Why did you break up? Well, it was too much work, too little money. You know, it was a lot of fun being uh, on our own. Um, the hard part is is getting um, business and, and getting the kind of business that was interesting that would 
pay the bills. Um, and we did okay, but you know, for all the effort we were putting in, it, it was a little bit challenging. We all had uh, young families. And so after about four years, um, we decided uh, to move on to other things. How did you choose this next firm? Well, I had been doing some employment law. Um, the Vladic firm had been sending me uh, a couple of uh, some cases, and it was just a good fit. And when I started there, I, in fact, continued to have a little bit of my own practice, and I worked for the firm as of counsel. And after just a few months, uh, we could see that it was a great fit. And Judy Vladek, uh, the great Judy Vladek, uh, asked me to, to come into the firm as a partner, and so, and so I did. And how long were you there? About uh, three, four years, and then from there to the Southern District of New York in 1994, nominated by uh, President Clinton. And who was the uh, U.S. attorney then? When, uh, when I was in the office, yeah. I, was, I was hired by John Martin, uh, and served under John for about a year or so. And then uh, Rudy Giuliani took over. And so the rest of my time I served under uh, Rudy. Big difference between the two. They they had different styles, that's for sure. Oh, okay. Uh, and from there, where did you go? Um, from the U.S. Attorney's Office to our small oh, firm, that's right. okay. Campbell, Patrick, and Chin. From there to Vladek Waldman. Okay. Now, why did you leave that firm? The Vladek firm? Yeah. I got nominated to the bench. And who nominated you? Uh, President uh, Clinton. I was recommended by Senator Moynihan. So Senator Moynihan had a, a screening panel, and I applied to that. This was something, as I noted, I had wanted to do for a long time, from my first year in law school. And at the time, uh, because of the politics the, the shift to the new administration, there were 10 vacancies in the Southern District of New York. Mm -hmm. And there had also been a push for diversity on the bench. In, at the time, in the entire country, there were maybe four Asian American Article Three judges. So I felt uh, the time was right for me. And at the age of 39, I submit, submitted my application for the Southern District of New York. All right, diversity, how important is that in the federal uh, judiciary? Well, it, it, I think it's incredibly important, um, diversity in, in, in different respects, not just race and gender, but also diversity uh, in backgrounds. Uh, it, it's helpful to have some uh, colleagues on the circuit who have been trial judges. It's helpful to have some who have been academics. It's helpful to have some who have been prosecutors and some who were not. Um, and it's also uh, important on, on other levels, certainly um, from the public's perspective and the appearance of things. Uh, but beyond just appearances, I think the quality of justice is, is stronger uh, if uh, the bench uh, uh, better reflects um, society. Yeah, I used to believe, uh, growing up as my household, a Roosevelt Democrat than a Kennedy Democrat, which are actually quite different, uh, that if you were paid enough attention and you had empathy and everything else, 
you really didn't need diversity because one person could understand other people's needs. And what I've since found, and I think is true, uh, the old thing about unless you walk a mile in the moccasins, that expression, unless it's very difficult, I think, actually, to be the minority person who things are happening to is a very different experience than the sympathetic other person thinking about it. And so I'm actually glad that uh, we are looking to do those things. Well, there's an interesting study done a few years ago in which was put into a Law Review article. The, the grants of summary judgment motions in employment discrimination cases. Um, and the authors looked at the race of the judges. <clears throat> it was white judges and minority judges. And white judges granted summary judgment 60% of the time. Minority judges only granted summary judgment 38% of the time. I think that's a significant difference. You know, who knows why? I mean, one reason could be that uh, minority judges find it more plausible that there is discrimination. And so I, I think that's a helpful example of how it could make a difference. Um, I had a trial once where the defendants were criminal case. Defendants were Chinese. Uh, all the fact witnesses were Chinese. All the lawyers were white. Um, the agents were white. And at one point, um, a, um, a witness is testifying and identified one of the defendants. And the lawyer stood up and conceded the identification, but it was the wrong person. It wasn't his client, um, you know. And I and I think that sometimes um, uh, it, it is just helpful to have that empathy that that you should have otherwise. But quite often, of course, it, it you're you have it more. Uh, you're more sensitive when you at least have shared some of the experiences. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, can you think of any case, and I don't have to mention any names of judges that where you think because of your heritage, and actually we'll go back to, to Hong Kong a little bit because I'm interested in that beginning, made a difference in the how you ruled in the case. I don't mean a discrimination case. I just... I can see where those situations would be, but just a regular case, are, are you saying diversity actually has an impact there too? I don't think um, that race is a, a factor in, in, in my deciding issues of law, for example. Um, you know, it, it, in terms of, of trying to understand things, it can make a difference only in the sense that you may appreciate things that others might miss. Um, another example is um, a, a, in that same criminal case, a witness is, is testifying uh, about what uh, um, a victim said in an interview, and, and it comes out as extortion. And one of the questions I had was, with this victim who was uneducated, uh, spoke, uh, um, you know, only Chinese, uh, uh, was, was pretty illiterate. Was he using the word extortion or what word was he using and how was it being translated? You know, these are just things to, 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 to think about. 
um, I mean, Justice Sotomayor, when she was going through the um, confirmation process, talked about a wise Latina judge and a wise Caucasian judge, and and and, and you know who's gonna make a a, a, a a better or wiser decision. I, I think what's what's helpful is that the two of them together, by talking about it, by by bringing their different perspectives, uh, uh, is is helpful. Um, there was a case a few years back where a, you know uh, a search, a Fourth Amendment case, nothing to do with race. Search of a 14-year-old girl, including removing her bra, that kind of a thing. Is it helpful to have a, a woman on the court who can appreciate better what that might mean than, than simply men? And this is before, you know, uh, the Me Too movement. Uh, but, but I think having these different perspectives can shed light on things. Yeah, I mean, I mean justice is blind. So, you know, why does uh, the race of the judge really matter? You know, and I, I think someday in a perfect world, it won't matter. I just don't think we're there yet. Now, one of the, the problems with this, the downside of this, is you're beginning to think that put people in boxes, and if you're from this background, you'll do this in this case or something else. And uh, to give you one example, when I was a USA in the Southern District, I think it may have been my first trial, and uh, there was a jury pool of which there was only one African-American in the, in the jury pool. And the person who was sitting in with me said, peremptory challenge, excuse that person. And I said, why? And I said, well, you know, there's a chance that that per the defendant was, was African-American. There's just a chance that that's how the person's going to vote and be sympathetic and it might have a hung jury. And I said, why? We can't tell that. And the, um, he said, no, do it. And I said, I refuse to do it. And so I did not excuse him peremptorily. He was on, ended up being on the panel. And I think... He saw that, actually the opposite of that, is I had faith in him as an individual. I trusted him to make an accurate determination on the facts. And that sort of thing is actually very helpful, that we don't get into this people, putting people in, in, in boxes. Uh, uh, and it turns out, of course, justice was served in that case, I might say. Uh, uh, but I, I think sometimes... I like diversity, but sometimes when we get too focused on it, we're going to actually not give that person or treat people fully as possible of doing all sorts of things. Yeah, you don't want to get to the point where you are are are, are putting people uh, in 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 boxes. Um, you know, we we've had cases over the years, including uh, myself, where judges were challenged based on their race, in a famous case involving Constance Baker Motley, uh, a New York City law firm, uh, moved for her recusal in an employment discrimination case brought by a woman because Judge Motley was uh, um, a woman. Uh, and, and you can't say that all women are, are, are uh, unqualified uh, to hear a gender discrimination case. Um, and, and, and so, but, uh, you know, it, 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 these, these things are, are, are important. Um, okay. Uh, just in the faculty, we had an exercise where every faculty member, they were divided into threes. 
ABC, and the A person had to give three minutes on what were the major influences in her life, and then the B had to summarize that, and the C would try to see if their B missed some things or how we perceive things. Anyway, it was an interesting exercise. Everyone actually enjoyed it. Everyone particularly enjoyed that three minutes of thinking what were the influences in your life because we rarely actually have to think about them and discuss them. But I'm going to ask you now, in no more than three minutes, um, what are, were the major influences in your life that you feel have affected you right up until now? Are you asking about people or are you asking about, about anything? That... It can be people, it can be events, it could be anything. Sure. Well, I think um, my upbringing uh, uh, as uh, the son of uh, two immigrants uh, in New York City uh, who did not speak uh, uh, English. Uh, we had very little money uh, growing up. Uh, there were challenges and difficulties along the way, and I think that has impacted me uh, and continues to impact me as I think about uh, all of the the challenges uh, that that my parents went through. Um, another uh, influence would be um, Judge Worker, the judge I clerked for, you know, as a young, uh, well, beginning even as a law student and then as a young lawyer and just watching him administer justice and run the courtroom and and how he dealt with people um, in, in really one of my first real jobs. I think that was um, a, a huge uh, influence. Was um, he a mentor as well as... He was. Uh, he was. You know, so I met him uh, as a first-year law student or that summer, and then I clerked for him for two years. Uh, and, and so he certainly was um, um, a mentor. Another great mentor, speaking of mentors and role models, is, is John Furick. When I was a law student here, uh, John uh, uh, was uh, uh, an adjunct, and I took employment law with him. And over the years, just got to know him, and, and, and he's just such a great person and a good person, and, and, and he's just someone you, you really want to, uh, to emulate. There are other... Uh, um, Certainly, I'm uh, just saying a little bit of John Fick, obviously, who was a dean here for many years, yeah. and uh, I have tremendous respect for. Him. And in fact, his nickname was John the Good, which yes. he hated, by the way. And uh, he actually reminds me of you a little bit. He was beloved, and, and the two people that I probably know who you can legitimately say are beloved, John Ferrick and Danny Chin. And uh, so, what? experience as a, was as a student that you knew John? I met him uh, as a student in his employment class, uh, um, Equal Employment Law. And then over the years, uh, as I became more active, and particularly after I became a judge, I, I interacted with him a lot more. It was at his suggestion that we started a minority mentorship uh, program here. Uh, I remember when he was president of the city bar, uh, I wrote him a letter and said there had never been an Asian American on the city bar judiciary committee. Uh, he put someone on. You know, I sent him. When was this? What were you doing when you wrote that letter? Um, I was active in the Asian American Bar Association. This would have been in the early 1990s, before I was a judge. Um, 
uh, I wrote him a letter. Um, I suggested three names of, of, of people who might make good additions to the committee, and he put one on. And so for the first time, uh, there was an Asian American on the city bar judiciary committee, that kind of thing. And then you, you just you know see what a, a, a humble and, and giving uh, person uh, he is. And so he is certainly someone I've wanted to try to emulate. I mean, there are, there are lots of impacts and influences, and it's, I don't know, it's hard to pick three, but just, you know, being at Princeton, my family, uh, uh, you know, I'm married, uh, uh, it'll be 40 years this summer. So there are lots of things, good things in my life. Wow, 40th anniversary. Yes. Uh, how are you about actually your anniversary? Are you... Do you well, get flowers, go out to dinner? What do you do on those things? Dinner. When you've had 40, you know, it's it, it, you don't do anything terribly special. Um, this year, we're going to take a trip, however. We're going to go to uh, Scotland uh, and look forward to that. Why Scotland? Just we've always wanted to be there and um, just happened to pick it. And at, in fact, at uh, your IP institute, I had a conversation with a judge from... Uh, from uh, Scotland, uh, Ian Forrester, who, who gave us some tips. On what to see. On what to see, yes. Yeah, Ian Forrester's a good man. Um, you know, it's interesting is that half of my family is originally from Scotland, and uh, uh, there's some view, and a lot of this country was, was actually populated by people from Scotland, maybe through Belfast coming in, and also the Irish directly. Um, but the, the people I know from Scotland, almost all of them are no longer in Scotland. Hmm. And Ian is a good example of that. He's been in Europe. He's been in the continent for most of his life. Um, yeah, but uh, it's, uh, it's a great heritage. Uh, My wife, by the way, actually has a little bit of Scottish blood in her. Uh, she's half Japanese. And her mother was a mixture of German, English, Irish, Scottish. So there's a little bit of uh, Scott in her. Have you done one of these, I just got it as a present ancestry things? I have not. I'm going to do that. And uh, um, should, I'm interested in saying, uh, I have, I know... I know in my mother's family, both of both sides originally when Scotland came to Belfast and came over. Uh, but my grandfather, um, for various reasons, left the family at a very early age. And uh, some people think my grandmother said, get out, never come back. Or, and other people think he deserted the family. But he was Lithuanian. And actually, if he hadn't left, my name wouldn't... Hanson was step-grandfather, my father's stepfather. It would have been Hugh C. Viscoskis. Now, would my life have been different? <laughs> I'm the same person, but if I was, instead of Hugh C. Hanson, Hugh C. Viscoskis, would I have had different life, different opportunities, different interests, or something else? What do you think? Well, we'd be calling this the Viscoskis podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. By the way, that is... Named after my parents, not named after me. Uh, okay. Uh, 
Maybe I'll do that. That'd be kind of, that'd be kind of, that'd be kind of <laughs> neat. Uh, all right, let's do a, a, a quick run through with the district court. Then I'm not very interested in your reenactments, which we could spend some time on. But so you were in the Southern District, and I just want to get some of the uh, mechanics down. You, like Judge Worker, generally did not allow oral argument on motions in the district court. Um, I had a judge when I clerked in the district court who always allowed oral arguments. Um, are there two sides to this, or is it what creates this? Yeah, there, I, there are definitely two sides, and, and I don't know that one is better than the other. Um, I was following uh, uh, Judge Worker's technique and not doing it. There came a time when I decided, let me try it. And I, for 10, 12 cases, I brought them all in for oral argument and try to rule on some of them from the bench. I mean, I think part of the theory is um, you, you might be able to save some work by, by hearing argument and then ruling from the bench if you can. Part of the theory also, of course, is to get more input from the lawyers and the back and forth, and, and I think that's useful. Um, but I found when I, when I did that little experiment that it was more work for me, less work for my law clerks, and I, I'm not sure that it, that it, it was a, that much benefit to me. There were certainly times when I would have oral argument in the district court, including, for example, on preliminary injunction motions, things that were moving quickly. You'd want to have that, 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 that give and, and, and take. Now, in the Second Circuit, our tradition is always to have oral argument with a couple of relatively minor exceptions. You know, many uh, appellate courts around the country pick and choose uh, what they will allow argument in. in. In our cases, unless you're incarcerated and pro se, or unless it's an asylum case, you don't have a right to argument. If you're pro se and you're not in jail, we'll let you have five minutes for oral argument. How, how much do you give lawyers? Most, most presiders, it's up to the presider, are allowing 10 minutes per side. Um, in a complicated case, maybe 12 minutes or 15 minutes per side. Um, when you pick and choose, the courts that pick and choose, they, they tend to give more time. But again, they're only hearing oral argument in a limited number of cases, and they tend to pick the ones that are more complicated. And so that's why we do what we do, 10 minutes in a typical case, but everyone who wants to argue can hear it. I, I You know, I get asked a lot, uh, does oral argument argument make a difference? And in, frankly, in most cases, the answer is no. Uh, you know, most cases are, are fairly clear um, and we're well prepared. We've read the briefs carefully, thought about it hard, and oral argument doesn't add that much. However, in the hard cases, in the close cases, oral argument is important. It can change our thinking, our reasoning, even if it doesn't uh, change our mind on the bottom line. But it's, it's, it's a useful thing. I think if I were in the district court again, I probably would allow oral argument more often. But, but again, probably not in every case. All right. Law clerks, district court, they're probably more important than in a court of appeals. Yes. Uh, I think it's much harder clerking in the district court. A lot more to do. Many different kinds of things to do. The volume is much greater. Uh, in the district court, they list your telephone number so that litigants and lawyers can call your chambers, and then the clerks would have to deal with that. 
in the Second Circuit, our numbers are not listed. If you want to call the Second Circuit, you call the clerk's office and you leave a message for Judge Chin. The law clerks basically have one thing to do, you know, read briefs and either write a bench memo if I'm not presiding or if I am presiding, write a bench memo or draft a summary order. Um, the, the volume is much lower. Um, there is more time between uh, sittings. Uh, and so it's, it's an easier pace. And I think overall it's, it's um, less challenging. It's more like being on law review, glorified uh, law review. You know, I clerked back in the day in the Southern District in the Second Circuit. Um, uh, and the Second Circuit had two clerks. And even with that, I was in the uh, Judge Wine in the Southern District uh, and uh, Judge Gerfine in the Second Circuit. I found I had tremendous time in the Second Circuit, even then, with just two law clerks. And, every, and now we have four. And now you have four, and you don't even write an opinion in everything. We were writing opinions in everything. So it's... Uh, I say this, uh, I, to some extent, being a Second Circuit law clerk is almost now a part-time job. No? Well, I don't know if I would agree with that. It depends on the job. It certainly is a, a much less demanding job than um, the How about, how about being court. a Second Circuit judge? Is that a part-time judge? job? No, it's not a part-time job. I've heard people say that before. Um, it, it obviously is a lot less on your plate than the district court, uh, particularly in the days when we were trying lots of cases. When There was a period of time when I was trying 20, 25 cases a year. Um, and, and so in that sense, that was probably a job and a half or two jobs. And the circuit court is one job. I mean, that's another way of, of, of looking at it. The, 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 the circuit court is more difficult in other ways, including that you have to work with others. You're not on your own anymore. You, you know, in the district court, you are independent. You work at your own pace. You can uh, write it the way you want it. In the circuit court, sometimes I sense that Either I, I feel like I'm waiting on someone else or I'm worried that someone else is waiting on me, you know, because you've got to work uh, together. Um, and uh, sometimes you want to come out a certain way based on certain reasoning and the others disagree. And so that puts a limitation on what you can say. And in our circuit, the culture is to be um, unanimous as much as possible. Um, and, and, and so what's the reason for that? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I think, I think I've heard judges say sometimes we probably ought to dissent more, but, um, I, I, I think it just makes it more collegial. I think it's a good thing to, in general, to decide cases on a narrow basis. And so if you're, if you try to be unanimous, you're more likely to be narrow and, and, and that's a good thing because you're not saying all these things that could come back to haunt you when you don't need to. Um, it's also more challenging in that you, you do have to think more about um, 
the future and other cases and, 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 and what's going to happen with, with your ruling in this case, whereas in the district court, you know, uh, your, your, your decision is, is not binding on your colleagues. Um, and you need to think a little bit about getting it right for the appeal. Do you ever, do you ever if you have a really difficult case, uh, send it around to the court generally? We're thinking of deciding this way, and does anyone have any comments if it's going to have traumatic impact? We don't do that uh, in general in the Second Circuit. I know in, in some circuits they do distribute draft opinions before filing. Um, we have what's called a mini on banc process, and that is if you're issuing an opinion that cuts back on prior precedent, for example. If you want to say that a recent Supreme Court decision uh, effectively overrules a Supreme Court precedent, you know, you might want to send it around before you file to see what the other judges think. Um, but in general, we don't circulate uh, opinions to the, the court before we file. We, as you know, we have an on banc process. We don't go on banc very often. That's one thing it's hard to get used to in the circuit court is that I can file an opinion today and then, and then my colleagues, even if they're not on the panel, can call for an on banc vote. Uh, and that is something that you don't have either in the district Yeah, but, but the Second Circuit is so rare that it's very rare to have a bank. It's very rare to go on banc, but there are fair, you know. Oh, I see, I see. You're there saying, are votes fairly often. Yeah. Um, uh, banc votes are called for, and then we have this internal deliberation where we go back and forth. But because our, our culture is to resist in general, we don't go very often. Well, a good example of that is the Ariel case, uh, which you were on a panel you dissented from. Yes. Um, and I don't know, uh, one of the parties sought in bank or a, a judge can seek in bank? Or... Yeah, I, I, my recollection is the parties did seek on bank uh, in that case, but I actually called for a vote which I don't do. I, I don't believe I've done it in any other case where I've called for an en banc vote. I did in that case because uh, I felt the majority had gotten it wrong, uh, and I felt the case was worthy of, of an en banc uh, hearing. Uh, in, in part, the majority's decision relied heavily on Cablevision. I always felt Cablevision was wrongly decided. I happen to be the district judge in Cablevision who was reversed. But apart from that, I, I felt that Cablevision was wrongly decided. And I thought that going on Bach would give us the opportunity to come to the right result in Aereo and then possibly to go back and revisit Cablevision, which we, we could have done by going on Bach. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing about Cablevision, uh, I don't want to go into the marriage because a lot of people probably don't know about it, but it all goes back to lawyers, and this is IP owners, copyright owners sometimes are their own worst enemies. I think Google Books is an example of copyright owners or, or Authors League or whatever who very uh, strangely were arguing things that were actually going to hurt copyright owners, especially small copyright owners and publishers. But in Cablevision, 
because they did not want to offend consumers who were taking cable and say they're directly infringing through this DVR. They sued for direct infringement against cable vision, um, of which it it's not going to be direct infringement. It's contributory infringement. It's frankly a pretty easy case. And actually, Judge Walker in there said, you know, if you were looking for contributory infringement, we might very well have gone there. So these strategic decisions sometimes can have drastic consequences. And Google Books is you're getting a lot of decisions which can be bad for copyright owners because the court's thinking, my God, if they think this is an infringement, we have to write it very strictly in fair use and other things to make sure it won't be. So what you end up with is a worse opinion by actually challenging it. Um, yeah, I, I, and I have been hoping for double vindication uh, in Ariel, hoping that when the Supreme Court took it, not only would they reverse um, the majority in Ariel, but they would go back and fix uh, cable vision. So I had to settle for single vindication only as they didn't touch Cable vision. Yeah, and that actually, the Ariel case, I think, is interesting. Um, it two things. One is, the judge who wrote it was very well respected in the Second Circuit, Judge Walker. I mean, it was chief judge and then no longer. And I think to some extent, there were some lawyers who felt, and Ariel, we can't, we have to respect that decision. I don't actually think it covers it, but we have to respect it. And then the other view is, it's such a waste of time to do this that we'll just let the Supreme Court correct it. Yeah, I mean, that's a big part of our institutional meeting, the Second Circuit's resistance to en banc. If it's that important, um, let it go up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court will fix it rather than spending another year in our court. When when um, en banc uh, review was denied in Aereo, um, um, I only got two votes. There were others who thought I was right, um, but their feeling was, you know, why keep it at this level and, and go through a whole process again and take the time, let it go up to the Supreme Court. And in the end, they were correct. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, let me see what was that. Hold on. Uh, So after Ariel was decided and you were vindicated, the people on your court say, uh, ah, well done, we were wrong, you were right, or or what? There were a number of, uh, of uh, nice emails. Okay. Uh, There's not a lot of gloating that goes on. <laughs> yeah. Now, do you feel, you don't dissent very often, right? Uh, I've not dissented a lot, although recently I've been doing it a little bit more. I, now, I, I've noticed that, and I'm just wondering if Ariel broke a logjam in your mind, if I was able to actually achieve some good in that case, and maybe I should dissent more. No, I don't think that that was uh, um, thinking on my part, at least not not explicitly, maybe subconsciously, I don't know. Uh, I think that, you know, in time, I've, I've just become a little more comfortable, and I think I do appreciate that that, that off sometimes, uh, not often, but sometimes it is worth um, um, expressing a view. Sometimes you can hurt things by dissenting, you know. 
uh, we, we do a lot of decisions by summary order. If you really press the, your point, if you're in the minority, then the majority has to write an opinion. And now you have a precedential opinion and you have the satisfaction of writing a dissent. Whereas you might compromise and say, I'll go along if we do a summary order. So the summary order comes out the way that you don't like, but it's theoretically not precedential. And so you wait for another time, another case to press the issue. There, there's another strategy in that, and some in the Supreme Court have taken this view, is if I dissent, I'm just telling the whole world what I want is absolutely wrong and, and highlighting it like on a billboard. So what sometimes they do is they'll write a concurrence in a judgment, which is de facto a dissent, and that can then be cited in the future. Yeah. Uh, does that ever play out in the Second Circuit? Oh, I, I think so. I mean, I, I think uh, sometimes uh, you can make it worse by, um, by uh, uh, dissenting, and, and sometimes um, you might be better off writing a concurrence uh, or, 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 or not pushing the issue and waiting for another day. Okay, reenactments. How did this get started? Well, uh, in the last, uh, I don't know, 12, 14 years, I spent a lot of time doing reenactments. Uh, and these are, are reenactments of historic cases. I got started uh, by being a member of the Federal Bar Council Inn of Court. And when I joined, uh, the first program we did was the trial of Ethel Rosenberg. And it was a great uh, experience. It was fascinating diving into it. We wound up getting uh, transcripts of the trial and I was able to find them in the National Archives on the original onion skin uh, paper that some court reporter typed up in the 1950s. And the case raised issues um, that were still very important. Instead of a bomb, if you put in the word terrorism, you know, you have the same kinds of issues. How does the, the uh, justice system deal with these issues of national crisis and times of, of, of war, times of pressure? Um, and, and then uh, uh, at one point, um, the Asian American Bar Association of New York wanted a program to put on, and I suggested uh, the Rosenberg reenactment. We had a, you know, a, a 55 minute script that's just a terrific script now who wrote the script it was done by uh my team you know the 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 inner court each team is headed by a judge so it was a group effort we reviewed the transcripts did the research and then put the script together um and in fact in that first presentation i played julius rosenberg i picked that part because we were focusing on ethel and and julius uh had a very small part but I had the death penalty imposed on me. And even though it was pretend, it was extremely uncomfortable. It was not fun. I sat at council table during the reenactment of the trial and the summation, and the lawyers would point fingers at me and call me names, you know, about you see this quite often, uh, uh, you know, what an idiot this defendant is, that kind of a thing. But I got to say, it was really quite a good experience for me to be sitting uh, at council table and, and, and being in the role of the defendant. But from there it went on, we decided to um, 
to do um, an Asian American case. Hold on, before I get there, just a little historical note. The judge in that case is a Fort was a Fordham graduate. Yes, Judge Kaufman, who later became uh, Second Circuit. Second Circuit, and uh, I don't know if you've heard this story, but it's been told to me many times by people at the time. Is there was a vacancy in the Second Circuit, and the city bar or people in the city bar thought that he was not shouldn't be the judge, um, and they convinced Henry Friendly. And they, and part of it is they didn't want it to be considered anti-Semitic because Judge Kaufman is Jewish, but Judge Friendly is as well. And they put him up, and he was actually put on the Second Circuit. Then Judge Kaufman went up later on. But it's interesting sometimes how these things work, isn't it? And if it's true, yeah. Judge Friendly has been a pretty fantastic judge, right? Well, uh, some would say he was, you know, the the best appellate judge of all time. Many would, many would say that. You know, there certainly was some resistance um, to Judge Kaufman because of uh, the Rosenberg case. Um, but eventually, uh, as, as you know, uh, he, he, he was appointed to the Second Circuit and eventually became um, chief judge. But during the course of putting together that program, um, I reviewed almost the entire trial transcript. Um, and Judge Kaufman was really injecting himself. He was asking questions of Ethel Rosenberg, for example, that, that prompted her to invoke the fifth in front of the jury. That would not happen today. But, you know, this is before some of the Supreme Court cases that were on point. But, but Judge Kaufman was very active uh, and, and, and asked quite a few questions uh, himself. Um, in any event, uh, uh, we did at some point start doing uh, Asian American uh, cases. Uh, we've done eleven of them. Uh, well, they weren't all Asian American. No, eleven were. Uh, I've done, I think, two dozen. Many were not. Uh, many. I continue and still am a member of the Inn of Court. At some point, uh, folks started asking us to do reenactments. Um, for example, Judge Ann Williams of the Seventh Circuit asked us, my wife and I, to do a reenactment to celebrate Constance Baker Martin. You need an agent. Well, it's become that almost. Uh, and, and so my wife, Kathy, and I picked uh, James Meredith, uh, suing to integrate uh, the University of uh, Mississippi. And we did a fabulous uh, reenactment of, of that trial. James Meredith. James Meredith, uh, uh, the preliminary injunction hearing in Mississippi in 1961. And this is seven years after Brown versus Board of Education, but there still was tremendous resistance in the South to integration, including on the part of the judges. So you had some judges really resisting integration. On the other hand, you had the Fifth Circuit Four you know, four of the Fifth Circuit judges, including John Minor Wisdom, who really wanted to, 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 to implement Brown and integrate the South, and they did a lot to do that. But you could see how, you know, the judges could impact uh, these important uh, issues. Well, actually, going back to our diversity thing, is James Meredith uh, was a very interesting uh, African-American in that I, don't, I think he may have even been racist himself against whites. He did his march, famous march. He didn't want any whites on it. He didn't want the 
groups that were actually civil rights groups having any part of his situation. It was just him. He actually, David Duke was running for governor in Louisiana. He supported him and other racist Southern senator in Mississippi. He supported him. Is quite a character that you think of, you put somebody in a box and they jump right out of the box and he had all these, as he said, independent views. I'm an independent person. Yeah, I mean, he, he certainly wound up being a controversial person who took controversial issues. Um, our program focused uh, on the early days when uh, he wanted to integrate um, Ole Miss, uh, and he, at one point he wrote a letter to um, Thurgood Marshall and, and asked for help, and, and, and Thurgood Marshall's solution was to send uh, Constance Baker Motley uh, down uh, to represent him. <clears throat> and one of the, 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 the interesting things is here you have an African-American woman, a lawyer, going into the Deep South to, you know, butt heads against the uh, assistant attorney generals and judges who were resisting uh, integration. Um, there was a passage that we came across that when she was in court arguing um, the case, the the courtroom would be filled with African-Americans from the community who were just there uh, uh, to watch this black woman uh, uh, arguing uh, the case. And, and there were just lots of really uh, interesting things. At one point during the trial, um, the assistant attorney general was asking questions of a witness and pronounced the word Negro as Nigra, N-I-G-R-A. Judge Motley stands up, objection. It's not pronounced Nigra, N-I-G-R-A. It should be Negro, N-E-G-R-O. And the assistant attorney general said, I, don't, I mean no disrespect, but this is the way I've been pronouncing the word all my life. And the trial judge overruled the objection and said, you can pronounce it the way you want. You know, really interesting things like that. And, and, and again, these are still issues that are important today. And that's why uh, we've been drawn to these uh, reenactments. Interesting. You know, Thurgood Marshall, to the very end, did not want to give up Negro, even when it was African-American. And he continued to use the word Negro because he thought that was the appropriate role. So it's interesting these things, which considered minor, actually are not all that minor. To be. Yeah. Another example is one of our reenactments is about uh, draft resistors who were interned in uh, the, the internment camps during World War II. We wound up using the term concentration camp. Uh, we gave this presentation one time, and during the Q&A, someone stood up, a teacher from the New York City public school system, who objected to our using the term concentration camp uh, because he felt that this was something that should be reserved for the Holocaust. Um, we had actually talked about this as we were preparing the program. We were actually using internment in the beginning. And um, uh, a professor who had written the book on the Heart Mountain Draft Resistors suggested that we use the term concentration camp. In any event, it's another small example of how these things wound up generating some very interesting uh, conversation. And do you think uh, 
professors should use your reenactments. I don't know if you've published them, the, the, the scripts or whatever, as teaching tools in their courses. Uh, absolutely. They're great teaching tools. Our, our reenactments have been represented um, all around the country. We've even done one in Switzerland. One of our reenactments about the murder of Vincent Chin in Detroit in the early 1980s has been repeated more than 30 times, including by the Department of Justice. So how do they Justice. get the script? Um, there are a couple of websites. The Second Circuit has adopted this, embraced this. On the Second Circuit website, Justice for All, there's a page for reenactments. And we've posted information about them. Uh, and uh, uh, the idea is a bar association, a high school, a college can request the script, and we will send it to them. There are also slides that accompany uh, the script. The Asian American Bar Association, likewise, has a trial reenactments page devoted to this. Um, and you can send in and make requests. Uh, our reenactments have been done here at Fordham Law School, three of them, four of them. Uh, they've been done at Princeton. They've been done at Harvard. Why not just post it and let anyone take it? Why do they have to ask permission to get Well, it? we want to make sure that they're being done for an educational purpose. Um, we want to keep track of, 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 of who's using them. Um, and so those are the reasons. Um, the first five actually are published in a law review. Uh, the Asian American Bar Well, because the reason I ask, it'd yeah. be very interesting just to read and be sort of you're denying the public that. Well, uh, the first five are in, uh, of the Asian ones are in the Albany Law Review, and they're readily available. Um, there are enough descriptions online so people can find out things about them. Um, there are, many of them have been been recorded, and are, the, 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 the videos are available online. So people can can see them, um, but they are really uh, a terrific uh, um, teaching uh, tool. Two weeks ago, uh, at the the Thurgood Marshall Courthouse, we were celebrating Law Day. We had three hundred high school kids in the courthouse. They saw, uh, among other things, a reenactment of the Susan B. Anthony trial. Susan B. Anthony was prosecuted in upstate New York for illegal voting. And so we did versions of our reenactment of the Susan B. Anthony case. That's great. All right, we have very little time left. One, uh, one, can I just mention one more? We did at some point, I didn't write it, I didn't help write it. The Connor Inn of Court did do an IP uh, oh. reenactment, and I thought you'd be interested in that, on the Wright versus Kurt, Curtis yeah. Patton uh, litigation. was argued in the Second Circuit in 19... 13, yeah. when the Second Circuit was still hearing patent uh, appeals. In any event, it's, it's, it's uh, uh, a reenactment of the argument. It gets into the, the dispute between the Wright brothers and, 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 and Curtis. Um, it was put together by uh, the inner court named after uh, uh, the late uh, Judge, Judge William Connor. Um, and so uh, uh, there is a program. Uh, it was presented in 2016. And the patent owners won. Uh, yes. They won the patent litigation, or though some say that they lost the overall battle. Uh, we're almost out of time. We're almost out of time. But the so finally, you've been a judge for how many years? 24 years. 
Um, 16 as a trial judge, 8 as a circuit judge. Okay. Now, as in terms of when you started to now, has the judiciary, the judicial system changed? Is it basically the same? If it's changed, how has it changed? I mean, I think it's changed uh, in some ways, although I think, you know, the, the fundamentals are, are, are still the way they were. Like everything, technology, computers uh, have changed things to some extent. Uh, the way briefs are filed and written and researched, um, you know, in the Second Circuit, we, we are still, to some extent, exchanging voting memos and drafts by fax, uh, believe it or not. But even that's starting to change. Well, you're a doing facts basically. Otherwise, you're afraid you'll be they'll be stolen, right? I I, I think initially it was um, a, a security concern. Uh, to, at least that was the stated concern. I think part of it was just this is what the judges were used to. As as more judges have have been coming on, I think it's starting to change. Now we do both fax and email, but we're still sending it by fax. Um, and, and these days, of course, the, the, the technology is so good that the faxes are at least clearer than the, you know, in the old days when you use the old fax machines, it was hard to read it sometimes. But, you know, I, I, I think um, the, the, the basics of making your arguments, writing a good brief, presenting a good oral argument, they're still, they're still very much the same. One of the, the, the fun things about doing these reenactments it's going back and seeing how things were 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 done, how uh, we did one on the Wyatt Earp case. How was cross examination? You know, in the 1900s, when cross examination was being developed, that kind of a thing. And 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 you'll see that, you know, good advocacy, uh, the basics are still the same. All right, there's one complaint I hear sometimes from the bar is that the students come out coming out now can't write as good as they used to be able to coming out of law school. Do you see any truth to that? Um, I think there is some truth to that. Um, and I, I would blame that on on computers. I mean, I've been teaching legal writing here at Fordham for, for some 30 years. But I could see it with, with, with my kids. You know, when you're sending texting and emailing, you wind up uh, um, um, taking shortcuts all the time. And you, you become lackadaisical about grammar and, 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 you know, how careful things are. I think uh, when you're doing research simply by doing word searches, you're not as careful. You're not thinking as much anymore about the concepts and, and the rules and the principles. Instead, you're putting a few word combinations into the computer and hope that you get lucky to some extent. And so... Um, you know, I, I miss the books. We still have some books, uh, but not many. Our, our, our library budget gets cut every year. But the ability to flip back and forth among the different pages to see what else there might be, you know, those are useful things. You know, picking up um, uh, a treatise or a horn book and, and starting to try to understand some of the principles before you dive into the different word combinations, I think is also a useful thing. So I think I think there is, is some of that. Uh, we sound like cranky uh, old people complaining about uh, uh, the, the 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 new generation and moaning about the loss of the old days. But I, I I do think that there probably is a little less deep thinking now. Yeah, that's unfortunate.
All right. Uh, I'm getting these looks from people here. Um, Danny, thanks so much. This has been fantastic. And uh, You're very welcome. Good luck to the uh, new endeavor. Thank you. And anyone who's listening, if you want to have questions about this, we could pass them on to Judge Chin. And if you have any suggestions as to what we should do in the future uh, or what the name should be other than, of course, the semi-sacred Hanson podcast, uh, we'd be happy to have them. And thanks again, Danny. It was great. You're very welcome. Delighted to participate. Thanks for listening to the very first episode of Non-Obvious. Make sure to subscribe to us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. Or visit our website at nonobviouspodcast.com. Stay tuned to hear a clip from our next episode when our guest will be former director of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, David Campos. When the legislation passed, this was now the first, so everyone celebrates, right, everyone backslapping, and then suddenly I can remember this. I woke up, I think this was, we had a big White House party, president, pictures in the Oval Office. It was great. You actually have the pen. That, yeah, I got, right? the, I got, yeah, one of the pens. He one used of several the pens, pens yeah. Um, and that Saturday morning, the next morning, I woke up and it suddenly occurred to me, and I turned to my wife and go, you know what? Who the hell is going to actually implement this?